Coming up on Tech Nation, figuring out how to be the best, whomever the best might be. Psychologist Dr. Ron Friedman talks about decoding greatness. Then Dr. Tom Hallam from Palisade Bio in San Diego. He talks about their efforts to solve a major problem post-surgery. How to get your GI tract back on track. We'll talk about why this happens and why their approach, now in clinical trials, just may work. And Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft will review the efforts to detect Alzheimer's at the earliest possible time. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five. With Moira Gunn, this is 5 Minutes. In 2013, I spoke with David Epstein, a senior writer from Sports Illustrated, covering sports science, medicine, and Olympic sports, and the author of The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. I wondered... Now that we have all these genetic tests, does trying out for a high school sport mean just having to give a DNA sample instead of playing for five practices before you're cut? Hopefully not. So we could be doing that, and there is direct-to-consumer marketing of genetic tests. But the fact is, you'd be better off using a stopwatch to see how good a, good a runner your kid is than using the genetic test. You know, why test it indirectly when you can test it directly? But the genetic tests that I actually think could be more useful for high school teams are for, for example, a gene called APOE, where if you have a certain version, we know you're at increased risk of brain damage if you suffer concussions while playing football. Maybe that doesn't mean you should be barred from playing, but maybe you'd like to think about other sports or about taking fewer hits in practice. So that's the kind of screening I think that actually could be useful. But now, having realized how complex genetics uh, is, scientists have come up with more innovative methods to find the networks of genes that influence attributes. And in exercise genetics, those networks are often not genes that say, well, you have this athletic trait, but genes that say, you will profit very rapidly and very much from this type of training, more so maybe than your training partner. Exactly, David. You know, we've been all looking at each other saying, well, the 10,000-hour rule, you know, Anders Ericsson's 10,000-hour rule to become an expert or to, to be trained to, in expertise to get there. It turns out that if we are training, your training and my training, your 10,000 hours and my 10,000 hours, those are two different things. That's exactly right. That's just as medical genetics showed us that because, for example, I have a different version of the gene of a gene involved in acetaminophen metabolism than you do, my one Tylenol might be more or less effective than your one Tylenol. Exercise genetics is finding the exact same thing. No two people, not even brothers and brothers and sisters and sisters, have even close to identical genomes. And so no two people respond to the medicine of exercise the same way and training. So that one person's hour can be completely distinct from another person's hour of training. And Anders Ericsson, actually, I, I organized a panel with him at the American College of Sports Medicine Conference in 2012, and he was quite adamant that he uh, never called 10,000 hours a rule. And he recently wrote a paper noting that the rising popularity of that phrase uh, he attributed to Malcolm Gladwell's outliers, which he said 
partly misconstrued his conclusions. Also, in what you said about uh, training, it's like, what kind of training? I mean, I'm reminded of the musician Bach who wanted to stretch his right hand uh, so he could get yeah. even longer, so he could play things that no one else could, end up weakening it. And so if you listen to Bach, you'll see there's a pretty heavy left hand and a not very, not very heavy right hand to the music. Hmm. And it's like, wow, that was the wrong training thing to try to get what you wanted with your particular situation. So you have to match that up as well. That, that's really interesting you mentioned that, and obviously I tended to focus more so on physical traits, but also on chess and mention music a little bit in the book. I think that idea that you're hitting on is a very important one, that because we each have a completely unique genome, for optimal results, we'd each have completely unique training and, and unique environment tailored to our genome. And I hope that's sort of where we'll get with the technology, that the promise of personalized medicine that was heralded a decade ago with the sequencing of the human genome, but really didn't come along as quickly as the forecasts. I, th I think now we're taking major steps there and, and in exercise uh, genetics as much as anywhere. So maybe we will have genetically tailored training. And, and that may sound a little scary, but if that means that we can help everyone get the best out of their unique genome, I think that would be fantastic. This 2013 Tech Nation interview features David Epstein, the author of The Sports Gene. Today, he's an investigative reporter at ProPublica, and his most recent book is the New York Times bestseller, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, figuring out what will make us successful by looking at what successful people do. Psychologist Dr. Ron Friedman is with us to talk about decoding greatness. Then a potential solution to getting our GI tracts working again after surgery. Dr. Tom Hallam from Palisade Bio in San Diego tells us why it's such a problem and the treatment that they're working on. And Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft reviews a number of efforts being undertaken to detect Alzheimer's early. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Ron Friedman. Well, Dr. Friedman, welcome to Tech Nation. Thanks for having me. Now, let's start with your subtitle, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success. For starters, who's the best in the world and what is reverse engineering? Well, the best of the world really depends on your field. So the question is, who are the top performers in your field, regardless of whether you're an attorney, a writer, an artist? There's someone who you can look up to and say, wow, I wish I could do that work. And what reverse engineering allows you to do is to figure out how they did it by working backwards to identify what was the path they used. And more importantly, what can I learn from it and how do I recreate it? 
Now, this is an old Silicon Valley habit. You know, look over at the other guy. Try to figure out what that person's doing. You don't want to be caught by surprise. And figure out a way to do it. Sometimes it's the same way. Sometimes it's different. But you get the result. And I think many of us have heard about Steve Jobs' famous visit to Xerox Park, where he got a demonstration of their Alto computer, which if you looked at, you would say, That looks like a Macintosh. It's like, it sure does. And the result was the first Macintosh with that user interface blowing everybody's mind. And at that time, Apple had a relationship with Microsoft to develop their products on the Apple computer. But then, many people don't know, Bill Gates skunked Steve Jobs. What happened? Well, so Gates was working as a vendor for Apple at the time, and he came out with Windows. And Windows did many of the same thing that the Macintosh did. And both companies, both Apple and Microsoft, were looking at the work of Xerox, the Alto, as you mentioned, and figuring out, okay, what does this do? And how do we work backward to create something that does the similar things, but then evolve it one step further? And so as I write in The Coding Greatness, in the case of Apple, what Apple was aiming to do was take the ideas uh, that were inherent in the Alto and make computers user-friendly, whereas Macintosh prioritized making computers affordable. So Gates and Jobs were working together And Steve Jobs finds out that Bill Gates is uh, releasing Windows, and he notices all the commonalities between Windows and the Macintosh. And so he summons Gates to Cupertino so he can tear into him. And that's the opening story of Decoding Greatness. And what I, I use that story to highlight the fact that in Silicon Valley, reverse engineering is well known. This has been going on for generations. It's how we got the personal computer in the case of the Macintosh and Microsoft Windows. But it's also the story of how we got laptops and how we got the mouse and Google Docs and all sorts of things. And what it does is it enables folks who are working at the cutting edge to learn from their contemporaries so that they're not taken by surprise. Because if you're working in Silicon Valley, you can't wait to find out about a new innovation in a course or a book or even a conference. You need to understand it in, in the moment so that you can react. And the same is true for all of us. We now work in a, we live in a world that is consistently evolving so rapidly that unless we're learning all the time, we're going to be left behind. And so in Decoding Greatness, what I try to do is take that approach to creative works and show you how you can apply it to writing memos, writing emails, and even writing books. And so here was Steve Jobs thinking, okay, I got this. I can hardly wait to get this out in the Macintosh. And who comes out with it? Bill Gates, (laughs) but with Windows. That's exactly Totally skunked him, but didn't really realize that he was doing the same thing. And if we look in more recent times, there's Jane Manchin Wong. Who's she? She is someone who is famous for reverse engineering apps as they're coming out. So if you look her up on Twitter, you will find that her account is hugely popular, particularly among people in Silicon Valley, as well as tech reporters, because she is updating people about innovations that are on the horizon that have not yet been released. And how she does that is by looking at the code that is inactive in app updates. And so that code contains clues about innovations that the app designer is testing internally. And so she has popularized this approach where she looks through the code and then sends out, I guess, communicates with reporters and 
identifies on her Twitter account what's next on the horizon. And so you'll be able to find out all, all sorts of things like the fact that Spotify is testing a karaoke feature. I don't know if that has been released yet, but that was one of the later ones, uh, as well as Instagram hiding how many likes a post have to see whether that affects user experiences. They're constantly testing, as as uh, Mark Zuckerberg has famously said, there's something like 10,000 versions of Facebook at any one time. There is no single Facebook. And it's how they uh, learn and test to see what is working and whether or not something is worthy of releasing to the general public. Now, when it comes to achievement, we've all heard that you either have natural talent and or you have to practice, practice, practice. 10,000 hours makes you an expert. How did it occur to you that there might be another way? That's a great question, because part of it was personal experience of how I learned to write. And part of it was by looking over the biographies of high achievers in a variety of domains. And what you discover when you do that is that, yes, talent and practice play a role, but that isn't the only path. There's a third path. And that third path is the focus of my book. And it's all about finding extraordinary examples and then reverse engineering them, working backward to figure out how they were created and how you can apply those same approaches to your domain. And so, as we mentioned, this approach has been widely known in Silicon Valley. But what's less well known is that Stephen King and Malcolm Gladwell learned to write by reverse engineering others. Uh, Claude Monet and Marie Cassatt did the same for painting. It's how they learned to paint. And even Judd Apatow, there's a great story in Decoding Greatness about him and how he became the legendary comedian that he became and, and the legendary comedy writer. And it's by reverse engineering other comedians. And so no, what no one realized is that this is a critical part of skill building is learning from the best of the best. And if you're all you're doing is relying on courses and books, chances are you're not learning as quickly as you could be. Now, Stephen King, whom you mentioned, is really a great example because he ultimately became famous for writing these thrillers, sort of a, a brand of thriller. And then along comes another writer, Joe Hill. Nobody. He needed to develop the skill or wanted rather to develop the skill. So what did he do to do it? He looked at the work of Elmore Leonard and copied it page after page. And so he was using a process called copy work. How copy work works is that it involves reading a passage and then reproducing it for memory. And it's not just an exercise in memorization. What it does is it forces a writer to pay very close attention to the decisions of the author as opposed to their natural inclination or their instincts, what they would have liked to have written by comparing what they actually remember against the original. And that process of looking very closely at what you wanted to do and what the author actually did opens your eyes up to new possibilities in your own work. And Joe Hill, as some of your listeners may know, is actually the son of Stephen King. And he's a very famous writer in his own right, highly successful, great books. I highly recommend them. And how he uh, learned to write was through this process that his dad taught him. This apple didn't just fall from the tree. Did not. <laughs> Never does, darn. Now, that's about sentences and rhythm. And, and we all remember in high school, you know, it's like, okay, you've got to write some Shakespeare-like, you know, verses. And it's like, well, you can kind of get there. You can't quite get to iambic pentameter. But that's at the sort of the sentence-to-sentence -sentence rhythm level. What about if you want to write like Malcolm Gladwell, not so much in the sentence-by-sentence -sentence way, but in the overall book. How do you do that? Yeah, great question. So one of the strategies I offer in Decoding Greatness is something called reverse outlining. 
And reverse outlining is a, a strategy that graduate students are often taught. And we've all heard of outlining. Outlining is the process of bullet pointing what you intend to put into a finished piece later on. Reverse outlining is taking it one step further, which is taking someone else's finished piece and then reversing it into its bullet points of if you were about to recreate it, what would you put down for every paragraph? And through that process, it forces you to take a step back and zoom out and see the 30,000 foot view of what's really happening in this work. And it's how you detect patterns. And when you do this for Gladwell's work, what you identify is that it's a pretty uh, predictable formula where he'll start off with a story, then he'll transition to a study, he'll go back to the story, another study, a bunch of red herrings, and at the end, ideally, there's some sort of actionable step or some sort of big idea that is the opposite of what you were expecting. And it is very much like how mysteries are constructed. When you do this, when you take a step back and you reverse outline, you start to see some incredible patterns that are not just enlightening, but also reproducible. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is psychologist Dr. Ron Friedman. You might remember him from his earlier book, The Best Place to Work. He's here today with Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success. Well, Ron, that's about writing and, and uh, you know, trying to create those kinds of genres. What about if uh, you look around at work and you see someone and say, boy, I'd like to be that manager someday, whether it's I just like to be that kind of manager or I want that position. What do you do? I love that you asked that question because I like to make the work that I write about actionable. And so this isn't a book simply for writers and artists. It's for everyday folks who are trying to get a little bit better at their job. And that's a great, a great question is how do you learn from folks who you admire at work? And so one of the first steps that I recommend in the book is to become a collector. And when we think about collections, we think about physical objects. We tend to think about stamps or wines or art, but that definition is far too narrow. You can collect all kinds of things. And in fact, some of the best in the world do. And if you look at the folks who have really achieved at the highest levels, they were collectors before they were producers. So in the case of Andy Warhol, he collected art. Julia Child collected cookbooks. Ernest Hemingway collected books. And if you talk to folks who are working in creative professions, they're collectors too. So a lot of copywriters I know will collect headlines. A lot of the designers I know will collect logos or websites. I'm a writer. I collect words. So if a word moves me on the page, I will circle it and I will place it in a Google Doc so that I can revisit it later. And what that process allows you to do is it allows you to compare the ordinary, things that didn't make it into your collection, against the extraordinary and look for key differences. And it's all about playing spot the difference. So that's the game that we all played as kids where you had two images side by side and you look for discrepancies. You can do the same thing with works that stand out. And that means in the case of a worker, it could mean a well-written email. It could mean uh, a moving presentation deck, a speech that you caught online that you want to better understand. And it's through this process of collecting and comparing and analyzing that you find those hidden patterns that empower you to produce better work. So you're looking at how they dress. You're looking at how they sit. You're looking at how they look online, since so many, so many of us are Zooming. You're looking at how they write an email. You're looking at uh, how they interact with other people. You're even looking at their feet. You're looking at anything that is interactions, uh, where they sit, how they sit, 
and all of that, you're observing it. Now you're not coming in and just, you know, copying them. So everybody goes, why are you copying the, you know, the boss? (laughs) Why are you always wearing polo shirts and he's wearing polo shirts and nobody else does? What's the story here? You know, but it's observing all of these things in some cohesive manner. It's having the toolkit to get some answers about what's different here. It's not just about mimicry either, because the most successful iterations are ones that take an established formula and then evolve them, right? So I think there's an episode of The Office where Michael and Dwight dress alike and act alike, and it's because Dwight is is mimicking Michael, and that's not what I hope for you. <laughs> so what <laughs> I do hope for you, don't be Dwight. Don't be don't Dwight. be Dwight. Right? If you, <laughs> if you take anything away from this interview, it's don't be Dwight. What I do hope for you is that you get a little bit better at identifying what are the elements that are impactful for me, and then which of these actually feel authentic to me. And then it could be a combination of elements. It could be your boss. It could be a consultant that you collaborate with. It could be someone who has nothing to do with work, who has traits that are impactful. And it is about identifying what makes it work and getting a better understanding from that process and constantly learning. You know, it's about having that inquisitive mindset of saying, hey, what's going on here? Why is this working? How can I learn from this? And how do I apply this to my next project? I have to say, I got a little nervous when you said, yeah, they all co- are collectors, collecting all the you know cookbooks and collecting all this stuff. And it's like, uh-oh, I collected about 3,000 interviews. I just don't know what I'm going to do with them. <laughs> well, well, there's an co- opportunity for curating them and turning them into a book, Moira. <laughs> That'd be a, one heck of a long book. And, uh, <laughs> and I don't know who I'd get to read it. That's okay. I- That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you just said something about you have to like evolve it. I mean, there's a certain amount of me to make sure that your competitors or prospective competitors are doing something that's going to get ahead of your game. But I got to tell you, in in Silicon Valley, uh, venture capitalists, tech companies, they don't just want innovation. They want something they call disruptive innovation, innovation that changes how everybody thinks or where everybody goes or or, or even an economy. Um How do you go about that? I think that's what they think they want. I don't think that that's actually what they want. And the reason I say that is because we have research showing that the more original the uh, object or or the product, the less successful it is likely to become. And it's because as a species, we tend to be distrustful of the new. We like things that remind us of something we've experienced before, so something familiar that has a slight innovation to it. And just an example of this is the Apple Watch. I don't know if you have one of these, Moira. I have one. The Apple Watch is not a novel creation. Seiko introduced a smartwatch 20 years ago, and it had many of the same features as the Apple Watch I now wear on my arm. It provided traffic information. It provided sports scores. It provided weather instantly. 20 years ago, no one's heard of it. How many people do you know who've had a Seiko smartwatch? After Seiko, Microsoft came out with the Spotwatch. Both of these were forgotten, and it's because audiences weren't ready. The same is true for Cosmo versus Amazon.com. Both of them deliver within an hour now. Where is Cosmo? And again, it's because you need to have both two things to be, for a product to be successful. You have to have the product be useful and innovative, but at the same time, you have to have audience receptivity. And if you're lacking the latter, you're not going to be successful. You mentioned this when you were talking through the Malcolm Gladwell example in the book, that one of the things that Malcolm Gladwell had to deal with or has to deal with is that his audience 
keeps changing. The audience moves. They're like, well, they're, they're onto this trick or they're onto that trick. So you have to keep following. You can't just copy them, but they, you can get a sense for what the audience like back then, or as Wayne Gretzky could, could, would say, where the puck used to be, I'm skating to where the puck is going to be. I mean, there is that dissonance. So part of you has to be your original sense of where the puck is going to go, where the audience is going to go after you've studied these various or outlined, as you say, these various situations. Exactly right. So I give the example in the book of Twilight and how when Twilight came out, all of these fans were flocking to the idea of a, of a young adult book about a teenager in love with a vampire. And all of a sudden, the market became flooded with these books about teenagers in love with vampires, and they all failed spectacularly. And the reason for that wasn't because they were all bad books. It was because audience expectations had shifted. They were on to the trick. And so what was it that succeeded? Abraham Lincoln is a vampire. That's the thing that took off. So you've got that minor twist on an established formula. And that's the key to being successful is find an established formula and put your twist on it. And in many ways, I hope that when people read Decoding Greatness, they'll take away the idea that, wait a second, this is a little bit liberating because all that pressure I'd been putting myself on myself to become completely original was not helpful. It was counterproductive. Not only was I putting too much pressure on myself that prevented me from producing great work, even if I had been successful at being completely original, I wouldn't have succeeded anyway. So many times we have in mind not just a, a nearby manager or a, a person in our local orbit, but we think about someone with some really big success that we'd like to emulate. And you talk about channeling personas. What is that and what does it do for you? Channeling personas involves thinking about how a certain person would behave in a particular situation. And having that as a reference point enables you to think up solutions that you wouldn't have thought of on your own. In social psychology, we call this idea priming. And there's research on all kinds of priming experiments that change the way that people behave. And I'll give you an example of a study that I did back in my graduate school days at the University of Rochester. We had people come into the lab and for half of them placed a bottle of water on the desk and the other half had a bottle of Gatorade on the desk. And Gatorade, as we all know, is associated with endurance and perseverance and hard work. And then we asked them to do a physical exercise and we looked to see which group would persist for longer. And as you would expect, just having a bottle of Gatorade visible changed people's behavior. And obviously, what we also found is that it changed people's mindset. They were a lot more willing to do the hard work because of that priming. And so you can utilize that in your own life by thinking about, hey, how would Stephen Colbert start this wedding speech I'm about to write in order to put yourself in that mindset? Or if you're thinking about uh, from the perspective of a marketing exercise, if you want to get have something go viral, you might think, how would Kim Kardashian have this go viral? Or how would Amazon market this? Just using those different vectors as a means of priming yourself enables you to produce more creative work. You have to pay attention to Dwight and you have to pay attention to Michael Scott, but you have to be very conscious of who you are and how what you could bring to the table and how you might be better, not disruptively better, but better. And that's, I think, where some of your confidence can come in. That's a great insight. And 
in decoding greatness, what I talk about is both how you can reverse engineer, but then also how you can evolve your formula in a unique way. And ironically, one of the best strategies for evolving a formula is to not pay attention to what everybody else is paying attention to. And I call that the strategy of willful ignorance. And what you find is that a lot of top performers use this strategy in order to be unique. I've been speaking with psychologist Dr. Ron Friedman about decoding greatness, how the best in the world reverse engineer success. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, a potential solution for getting the GI tract back to full function after surgery. And Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft reviews a number of efforts to diagnose Alzheimer's early. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Ron Friedman about his book, Decoding Greatness How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success. One of the best strategies for evolving a formula is to not pay attention to what everybody else is paying attention to. And I call that the strategy of willful ignorance. And what you find is that a lot of top performers use this strategy in order to be unique. So, for example, Bill Maher has a comedy show on HBO. John Oliver also has a comedy show on HBO. Bill Maher refuses to watch John Oliver. I don't know. I can't speak to John Oliver. I haven't identified what he watches, but there are articles where Bill Maher says, I don't watch any other comedy show. Jimmy Fallon, same thing. He doesn't watch either one of them. And it's because they realize that if they do watch their contemporaries, they will be moved to mimic one another and also be slightly less motivated because they'll feel like everything's already been done. And that same is true for all of us. So many folks feel compelled to consume the same podcast or read the same articles because they feel like if they don't, they'll be missing out. But you can actually find your unique twist by tuning out and being um, purposely selective about what it is that you put into your mind because the more information that's floating around, the less opportunity there is for new ideas to gel. 
Now, a couple of quick questions at the end here. First, they tell us visualize success. Good move or bad move? Research does not smile down on visualized success. And, the, you know, this is a very appealing notion. If you think of great things happening to you, you will be more successful. Turns out the research is that's just the opposite. And I'll give you a quick study. Uh, this was done at UCLA where they had introductory psychology students come in and visualize themselves scoring really well on their next exam. The next group, however, was told to visualize themselves studying. The last group was told to just simply keep track of how often they studied before the exam. And what they found was that the group that had visualized themselves doing well on the test did worse than any other group. And the reason is because when you visualize yourself achieving an, a desirable outcome, you get that temporary satisfaction that prevents you from doing the actual work necessary to be successful. So visualizing success, not a winning strategy, a far better strategy is to visualize yourself doing the work necessary in order to succeed. And the reason that works is because you're front-loading decisions. So that group that was asked to visualize themselves studying, they had to actually think about, okay, where, what do I need to study? Where would I do it? How long do I need to set aside? Where is my phone going to be? All those sorts of decisions that empower them to do it more successfully. Okay. Why is batting practice counterproductive? It's because when Baseball players use batting practice. They're typically doing it at a reduced level of difficulty. So when you think about all the things necessary to be a successful baseball hitter, you need to hit balls at a high speed. You need to be able to predict where the pitch is going to be before it happens. And you need to deal with a, a variety of different pitches. Batting practice contains none of those features. And so when players hit balls at batting practice, what they're hitting is balls that thrown at 60 miles an hour. They're straight-laced pitches. And so they're actually practicing for an occurrence they're unlikely to encounter. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> not good. Not good. It's not good. Not good at all. Why is most feedback surprisingly harmful? In many cases, the feedback that we get doesn't help us improve. And it's because... Many of the people who we ask of feedback either are not our target audience or they give us feedback that is sugar-coated or not specific enough to help us improve. And so if you want to get the most out of feedback, you want to do a few things. You want to ask specific questions about elements that you think may not be going right. You want to invite people to give you negative feedback by actually phrasing your question in a way that enables them to pick out on the elements that could be improved. And interestingly, you want to ask them for advice, not feedback. There's research out of Harvard Business School that shows that if you ask people for advice, they will compare your current performance to what it could be. Whereas if you ask them for feedback, they'll compare your current performance to what it was. And so you're more likely in that latter instance to just get, it's good because you've improved, but that's not what you want. You want specific tips that you can apply to get better. And so by asking them for advice, now they're going to compare you, your current execution against your future potential and come up with more ideas for you to improve. You know, that feeds right into an old Silicon Valley adage that if you say run into a venture capitalist or someone with a lot of money who might be interested in, in investing in you, you don't ask for money, you ask for advice. <laughs> if you ask for advice, they might give you money. <laughs> and the idea that you're asking them for advice means that they're projecting who you could be in the future. So it's actually right in line with that. 
And I think it also highlights another feature of asking people for advice, and that is it shows you value their opinion. And that is another reason people invest in you is when they feel heard and they feel valued, they're more likely to see potential in your offering. Okay, here's the final one. Steve Jobs never forgave Bill Gates. Was that a good thing for Steve or a bad thing? So, Moira, I'm going to give you an answer that has nothing to do with what you're expecting me to say. Is that okay? (laughs) Of course, of course. I think it was part of his personality. I think he was driven by competition. And in in the sense of what did it make him more innovative and successful? Probably. Did it make him a happy person? I don't know about that. Uh, One of the strategies I talk about in the book is using reflective practice to improve. And reflective practice is similar to deliberate practice in that it is a tool we can use to elevate our skills in anything that we do. And athletes do it all the time. So just some definitions. Deliberate practice is when you focus on doing something that is hard for you to do and increasing increments of difficulty so that you're constantly challenged to improve. Reflective practice is looking at your past experiences and drawing out some wisdom from them by comparing your previous expectations to your actual experiences. One of the ways you can incorporate reflective practice into your life is by keeping a five-year journal. So a five-year journal is a tool that you can find on, on Amazon and all kinds of bookstores where you've got five entries for each day of the year. And You write down for a few lines what you learned that day, and the next day you do the same, you do this for a year, and then after a year you come back and you input what you did that day, but then you can also see what you did on this day one year ago last year. So you're constantly learning and you're strengthening your memory for past events by keeping a five-year journal, and it automates this process of reflective practice because now you're forced to think about what did I learn today, and then also compare it to your previous expectations. So what about Steve Jobs? (laughs) (laughs) Was that smart or not? Should he have forgiven Bill Gates? You know, I guess it depends on your definition of smart. So I think, I mean, we know from the research that rivalries can help us succeed. In other words, they will provide us with the motivation. The competition motivates us to do better. Question is, what are you optimizing for in life? Are you optimizing for being memorable, for being having contributions to society, or are you optimizing for your life satisfaction? Because unfortunately, sometimes those two things don't go hand in hand. Really interesting. The whole book is interesting. So, Ron, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back and see us again. Anytime. Thanks so much. My guest today is Ron Friedman. His book is Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineers Success. It's published by Simon & Schuster. I'm Maury Regan. You're listening to Tech Nation. Many of us have undergone surgery, and it went well. But before we leave the hospital, they won't let us leave until we do one more thing. I asked Dr. Tom Hallam, the CEO of Palisade Bio, what is that one more thing? Well, Tom, welcome back to Biotech Nation. Hey, thank you so much for having me back. It's so great to be back on the program. Now, many of us have undergone surgery and it went well and we're all set to leave the hospital, but they won't let us leave until we do one more thing. What is that one more thing? Patients have to have a bowel movement. As we say, you have to go before you can go. Now, why is that? Well, the, the thing that happens is that after any kind of hospitalization and particularly major surgeries is that uh, there's an injury to the gastrointestinal tract and that 
patients, if they don't have that return of bowel function, it can become a, a catastrophic emergency very, very quickly for these patients. And it can be life-threatening. And that, you know, the medical system as we have it today just doesn't want to take the risk of sending someone home unless they have a full return of their bowel function. Now, what is happening inside your body that there is a problem like this? Well, what's happening is there's uh, an assault. And essentially, the barrier that keeps the digestive enzymes in the GI tract breaks down. And those enzymes, they flood like a tsunami into the tissues of the gastrointestinal tract. And, you know, everybody knows that our, our gastrointestinal tract is constantly moving things through our body, but they don't think about the movement as muscles, right? And that the first thing that happens when those enzymes come in contact with the gastrointestinal tract is they attack the muscles and the, the, the nerve fibers that allow for the normal motility of the gastrointestinal tract. And those enzymes just break down the tissues and prevent that normal motility. So the digestive enzymes were eating your food and whatever, at whatever state it was coming along your GI tract, and now they've broken into your system and they're eating your tissues, shooting your muscles or whatever is there. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you think about like our enzymes, uh, they, they're the, this amazing power of them, right? You know, whatever, let's say someone eats a chicken san breast sandwich for lunch, right? And the enzymes of your body can break down that tissue, that muscle tissue that was a chicken breast into the basic building blocks of life. But when those same enzymes release and they, they cross the gastrointestinal tract, they can uh, cause damage to the same muscles that are part of our, our own uh, GI tract. What kind of surgeries can cause this? Is it just surgeries with, you know, that have to do with the GI tract? Uh, this is one of the most amazing things is it's almost any kind of major surgery. Think about this as heart surgery or GI surgery, abdominal surgery, and even gynecological surgery. You know, and and you know, for a lot of people, one of the first times they, they experience this is after like a C-section after childbirth, where you know, they've now got this newborn baby and they, they've, uh, they're ready to go home. And you know, lo and behold, you can't go home until you can go. Why is it that heart surgery could possibly cause an injury to the GI tract? Well, it's, it's this fascinating thing that happens that, so think about the, the patient that's undergoing an open heart surgery in particular, right? There's a, there's a lot of people in the room doing a lot of things during that surgery. And, and one of the individuals is a, called a perfusionist. They're responsible for putting the patient on a heart bypass pump and making sure that there's adequate blood supply to the brain and the lungs and the heart and keeping those vital organs alive. And they kind of take blood, if you will, from the rest of the body, the extremities and the abdomen. And so there's this lack of blood supply or a decrease in blood supply to the GI tract. And, you know, it's not enough to, to kill the patient by any means, but it definitely causes this injury. It's called a hypoperfusion injury. It's a lack of perfusion of blood supply. And slowly during that, while the patient's on the heart bypass pump, that barrier breaks down. Those enzymes flood into the GI tract and there's a delayed return of bowel function. Now, you say flood into the GI tract. You mean flood out of or flood into? Well, I think about it this way. Um, the, these enzymes come from the inside, what's called the lumen of the GI tract, and they cross the barrier, the, the barrier into the tissues of the intestines, really. And it's once they're inside the tissues itself, that's when the, they wreck their havoc. So what is Palisade Bio working on? 
So uh, we are developing a drug for accelerating the return of bowel function and uh, reducing a scar tissue that happens after surgery in the abdomen as well called adhesions. And it's this drug that inhibits the digestive enzymes. It's a liquid and, and patients drink this. And by drinking it, it inhibits and coats the entire gastrointestinal tract and stops those digestive enzymes from attacking the tissues of the GI tract and causing that delay in return of bowel function. And then the reduces the scar tissue that can occur postoperatively as the body tries to repair the damage that those digestive enzymes cause. So you're not stopping the injury. The injuries are going to happen, mm -hmm. but you're stopping the digestive enzymes by being active during the post-surgical period. So if there is an injury, then it won't be eating all the muscles. Eating's probably not the scientific word. That's right. <laughs> but eating all the muscles around it because that's its job. It's like Pac-Man in your GI tract, just trying to eat, 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 eat. And it's like, oh, you can get spilled out there, but it won't be eating, won't be trying to digest your muscles. That's exactly right. And, you know, and it's, it's this innovative way of thinking about um, the biology, the biology that these enzymes can really damage our tissues and that the injury is still going to happen. The barrier is still going to break down. But when they cross into the tissues, it doesn't cause the damage. And hopefully, right, what we can show is that the bowel function just wakes right back up and there's not this long delay that the body has to go through a long period of repair to have that bowel function return. Now, you've obviously been working on this. Uh, you've done preclinical. You've been working with animals. But you've also had three or four uh, phase two studies. You've been using this in humans. We have a we have a number of clinical studies that we've done. You know, one of the first studies that we did was a uh, a randomized double blind study in heart surgery, and we showed this highly statistically significant improvement in return of bowel function simply by inhibiting these digestive enzymes. And we've had some open label studies, which are uh, studies that aren't blinded, where we've treated patients undergoing GI surgery, and in that we showed you know pretty profound improvements uh, in return of bowel function uh, over a day. So how many people have taken this treatment so far? Oh, wow. Um, in clinical studies, uh, we've had probably well over 200 patients take a, in, involved in our clinical studies. And now we're in the process of reading out additional data. We're going to be coming forward with additional data from a randomized, double-blinded uh, study in gastrointestinal surgery, where we're going to be um, disclosing the data from uh, return of bowel function, as well as um, looking at intra-abdominal adhesions, which is the scar tissue that forms in the abdomen after surgery. How can you tell the level of adhesions that are inside your body after surgery? Oh, this is, um, you know, this is something that's uh, uh, very dear to me because it's affected me personally. But one of the things that happens for a number of patients, including for my own father who underwent a gastrointestinal surgery a number of years ago, um, was that they have a first surgery where uh, they have to worry about that return of bowel function. And then there's a second surgery that they have to undergo to reverse some of the aspects of the first surgery. So during that second surgery, what we do is we have the surgeons actually quantify. They, they're in the abdomen already. So they take a look and they say, hey, in, in these different quadrants of the abdominal cavity, how many adhesions are there? They can count them. They can see how uh, fibrous they are and if they're causing problems for the patient as well. By adhesions, what are those? So uh, they're, they're scar tissue. Um, you know, it's basically adhesions are when two pieces of a tissue are adhered together that wouldn't normally be adhered together. Ah, ah. And that's what happens when some of these enzymes get out and start creating havoc. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, think about this from a, uh, a medical or surgical perspective, right? If you 
took a, um, an incision and put on one of your hands and then took another incision and put on the other hand and then stuck those hands together and put them in a nice, warm, wet cavity, like the abdominal cavity, they'd form scar tissue together. They'd just grow together. But instead, what we have happening after surgery is there's these enzymes that cause that tissue damage. And now the tissues are all nice, wet, and warm in the abdominal cavity. They just begin growing together. And what we hope is that by having our drug on board, we inhibit those enzymes. There's not the damage in the first place. And therefore, then there isn't the, the growth of this scar tissue that can cause so many problems for, for patients down the line. It's really one of these uh, problems that people don't know about it until it affects them personally. Like people um, don't know that the number one cause of secondary female infertility is adhesions, right? That the number one cause of female infertility is, is actually menopause. And just below that, secondary to that is adhesions. And, and so you're like, why is that? Well, it's actually because there's so many people that undergo surgeries, but in particular, uh, you know, think about the number of women that have um, C-sections, right? And we all know that each time after a C-section, there is an increase in scar tissue. So it's, it's oftentimes very rare that after a number of different uh, C-sections, women can continue to give birth. So it's this major cause of infertility. So we can't just do an X-ray or an MRI but we're saying if there isn't the injury, then there won't be the adhesions. That's right. That's right. You can't look in the abdomen and see if the scar tissue is there. You just can't image that. You have to get your eyes on it and look. But we should see a reduction in uh, secondary surgeries after you have your initial surgery. That's right. We expect to see a reduction in adhesions at a second surgery when the surgeons can get their eye on it and look at it. For those people who have taken this, then they should not have to have secondary surgeries, but should they have it, then at that point, the surgeons will take a, a good look and, and report what's in there. Well, and that's one way to think about it, right? In particular, because um, oftentimes these adhesions can uh, lead to the need for a second surgery to take down those adhesions. And some of these patients are just going to be going, undergoing a second surgery as their normal course. And then we'll have, have the opportunity to look, to see the scar tissue at that time as well. Well, you know, I have to say, a whole bunch of people say, oh, yeah, just drink this. Right. A lot of people have gotten those colonoscopies, you know, and the night before yeah. they say, just drink this, this big, awful thing. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's oh, terrible. Yes. Well, how does it compare to that? Okay, so that's the uh, this is a great question. Uh, think about that. Go lightly has kind of been for many decades the gold standard of what bowel prep is, and that's four liters of fluid. So it's 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 something that like four big things of of Coke or soda or something like that that you would have lined up. That's exactly right. So it sounds you know it does it's not a good ple a pleasant time for a lot of people who have done that. But for our, our drug, it's very different. Um, it's the, the size of a can of Coke. It's 350 milliliters. So, you know, being able to drink that twice prior to surgery, I think is very reasonable. And importantly, you know, the, the feedback we've gotten so far from patients is that the drug tastes like salty Gatorade. It's got carbohydrates in it. It's kind of sweet. So it's uh, uh, in comparison to um, other things that are out there, this uh, should be a fairly uh, innocuous experience. So... You said a can of soda twice. I mean, you have to like space that out or is that how much you have to consume? Yeah, um, it's, um, it's, they actually take it twice. It's, if you think about the patient journey, right, it's uh, about taking this drug once the night before surgery and then taking it uh, the morning of surgery. And then you know, for a patient, particularly in the United States, they're going to go in to usually check in at sometime at like six o'clock in the morning for a surgery that'll happen later that morning. So you do it right before you came to the hospital? 
That's right. You take it right before the night before and then the morning right before you come to the hospital. Okay. I know you've tasted it, Tom, but here's the $64,000, maybe $64 million question. Have you drank a whole can of it? I cannot say that I have. So <laughs> how about management? Is management? Who in your management has drank a whole can of it? <laughs> um, I will uh, neither confirm nor deny any of those allegations. <laughs> now, I have to tell you, the management of Ben and Jerry's, I can guarantee you, have been eating that stuff constantly, constantly, <laughs> enthusiastically doing that. And uh, I just have to say, you know, I, I kind of want to make sure that you guys have a can at night and the can in the morning just to say that. Because for one thing, you may say, you know, we need a different flavor. <laughs> you no, know, we need, you know, things that would really make a difference in the patient experience. Now, you know, you've been on before. We always love having you on. You know, if you come on again, I'm going to ask you about this. All right. I will. I love getting asked. <laughs> I, and I hope I want you to come on again. I will. So you're always uh, welcome. Uh, All uh, right. Thank you that for any invitation. <laughs> I'm just grateful. It's such a pleasure being here. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. Dr. Tom Hallam is the CEO of Palisade Bio in San Diego. More information is available at palisadebio.com. In terms of health for any medical condition, early diagnosis is always better. I asked Dr. Daniel Kraft, Technation Health Chief Correspondent, how we're doing in detecting Alzheimer's at the earliest possible time. As you know, and most of our listeners know, Alzheimer's is a huge challenge or dementia in general. And the earlier on you might pick up a disease, let's say, let's say risk of heart disease. We're familiar with high cholesterol and many folks might take a statin to lower their overall cholesterol and their risk for having a heart attack. We're starting to move into that era for diseases like Alzheimer's. And Ideally, you don't want to discover Alzheimer's when someone is symptomatic and starting to, you know, get lost or have trouble finding many words or having other cognitive issues. You want to detect it even before they have any symptoms. I like to call that stage zero medicine. And now there's some several approaches to predict who's likely to get dementia 10, 20, or even 30 years earlier. So a couple of them real quickly. One, we know that certain forms of Alzheimer's have a genetic component. Uh, there's a gene called uh, for uh, APO4E, that some uh, individuals uh, are homozygous for, meaning they carry uh, two copies of that gene, and those folks are at significantly higher risk of having Alzheimer's. And that is one way to be kind of identifying folks at higher risk. Number two, there are ways to do more expensive and sometimes invasive scans, PET scans of the brain that can look for plaques. And uh, those plaques often are there well before their symptoms. So that's uh, number two. Number three, there's some very non-invasive ways to look for signs of plaque or Alzheimer's elements. One is looking at the back of the eyeball on the retina. A company called Redispec out of Canada has modified cameras to take a picture of the back of your retina and identify uh, early signs of these plaques, which are often correlated with Alzheimer's disease. And a final one uh, is using our digital biomarkers. One can be voice. Voice is a biomarker and has been shown to pick up signs of early Parkinson's and potentially dementias. And even eye tracking on a simple tablet. Um, when you ask a patient or an individual to look at one image and then another and track their eyes. A platform developed by a San Francisco startup called NeuroTrack has a pretty good correlation of identifying folks at high risk of developing Alzheimer's or dementia later. So bottom line, many new approaches. Um, the trick will be not just identifying those folks, but what can you do about it? And that's what's going to become exciting next. 
I know that many times if there's nothing we can do about a condition, there's not a lot of effort put into diagnosing it. But for me, knowledge is power. The knowledge that we know about something can drive that innovation. Yeah, absolutely. Knowledge is power, but we often sometimes don't want to know uh, if there's nothing we can do about it. There's a horrible genetic disorder called Huntington's chorea, uh, where if, let's say, your father has the disease, you have a 50% chance of having that same G- disease of a horrible neurologic condition that kills most individuals by the time they're 40 or 50. Many folks don't want to know if they have it. Now there's some potential approaches to address it, but that's a good example. Similarly with Alzheimer's, there's only been, I think, one approved drug in, in what, the last 20 years that has a slight ability to modify the progression of Alzheimer's. But since then, we've had 20 plus clinical trials, many of which have failed, attempting to look at the mechanism and stop and slow its progression. And we're speaking now in, in, in June of 2021, and we've had the first approval of a new drug uh, for Alzheimer's, which uh, seems to act on the uh, plaques that looks to have some promise at uh, slowing the rate of Alzheimer's progression. But it's been a long, tough road. Do you think this will come down to the consumer level or do you think we'll continue to diagnose this through doctors? Well, as I mentioned earlier, many of our diagnostics are becoming digital and virtualized, you know, from the smartphone or your smart watch, looking at your behaviors. Um, we can potentially div- diagnose certain mental and cognitive issues just by how you're typing on your smartphone or your voice or your gait. So I think a lot of these elements whether we like it or not, are going to be sifted and made sense of. And we'll say, hey, looks like something's a little off base or don't want to worry you, but 20 years from now, you have a higher risk of Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, cancer. You might want to be proactive now, whether that's earlier screening or changing modifiable lifestyle elements from diet to exercise to mindfulness uh, to brain games, You know, which some folks think uh, can impact uh, memory. Coffee uh, intake seems to have some protective elements around Parkinson's and some dementias. Or the ability to understand our microbiome, which also seems to play play a role in risk for for certain uh, neurologic disorders. So I think it will become more democratized. And, and, uh, and again, knowledge is power. And you know, the more we can find diseases at the stage when they're early, the better we can use interventions to treat them, including the basic stuff. So our friend, Dr. Dean Ornish, who's well-known for developing the, the Ornish diet that can help stop and reverse heart disease, is using a similar approach for folks with early Alzheimer's. And uh, in preliminary work not yet published, it's looking quite promising that there might be the opportunity to stop and reverse progression of neurologic decline with, you know, uh, plant-based diets and mindfulness training and yoga and other elements, which at their core uh, really uh, impact many diseases, but potentially not just heart disease, but neurologic diseases as well. Daniel, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Brian. Stay safe, stay healthy. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is a physician scientist and innovator. More information is available at danielcraftmd.net. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media.
I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.